News. 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 New York City. FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. It's FAQ NYC. I'm Harry Siegel in Brooklyn, here with Professor Christina Greer, elsewhere in Brooklyn. Hello. 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 Since we last spoke, we finally got very late brunch results from the Board of Elections and a much better sense of the direction the city is going to be taking. Looks like Eric Adams is going to be the 110th mayor of New York City. 8,500 votes, one percentage point, about 400,000 votes in total for him. He came in just ahead of Catherine Garcia, who in turn came in just ahead of Maya Wiley. Nationally, people are saying a police officer is in charge and it's a return to centrism and all this stuff. I'm not sure any of that applies to Adams. Uh, the council pretty clearly is going to be moving to the left. Uh, the controller is going to be farther to the left. Most of the borough presidents. It's an interesting election. Uh, Chrissy, what does this say about where the city is going to be headed over the uh, 2020s? Where are we at? <laughs> well, I think that Eric Adams, is he going to be our first mayor with an earring? These are the important questions. Um, but in all seriousness, I mean, there are a lot of hot takes on, you know, the city council will be so left and Adams will be so right. I don't know if I, if I know, I don't know if I feel that. That's 51 people. I think it depends on who the speaker is. The speaker can only do but so much. Same with the mayor. Um, I, I think I'm weirdly optimistic and I don't know where that's coming from, but I'm weirdly optimistic largely because Eric Adams is a deal maker and always has been. And I think that there are opportunities for people to sort of find some ways to make each other happy. I don't think that, you know, Eric Adams is going to have some, you know, super sweeping reforms. I think the reason why I'm not apoplectic like some New Yorkers is because I'm waiting to see a few things. One, who he chooses as his police commissioner, right? As I've said plenty of times, had I known Bill de Blasio was going to sign up Bratton as his first police commissioner, I wouldn't have voted for him, like full stop because that would have told me that the progressive message he was talking about was completely nonsensical. So I'm curious to see who his deputy mayors and commissioners are. Does he extend an olive branch to the more progressive wings of the party? You know, does he ask Ray McGuire to help him think through some of the economic issues, you know, or Sean Donovan to think through housing or, you know, Maya and Catherine uh, to think through homelessness and housing and, and some of the issues that they were really championing and clearly New Yorkers resonated with them. You know, that doesn't always happen, but at least a, a genuine sit down and sort of getting some ideas as to like who they would staff. I mean, that sort of tells me a lot. Um, or, you know, does Eric Adams just say, I won, you lost, kick rocks, and it's my show. But I, I'm like weirdly optimistic that this, this wild ride that we're about to take together as a city will be one where over the next few months, especially when we have like mayor and shadow mayor, we'll get to see a little bit more of the concrete priorities of Adams. Adams has been, you know, doing this victory round. Of course, he has to win the general election. And of course he will. And he's been talking about a bunch of uh, big, you know, moon mission sort of things very loosely that we're going to be the, uh, the Bitcoin capital. And we're going to have self-driving cars and drones. Yeah. And on the one hand, 
we have all of these big tech changes coming. They really are. And we don't want New York to be a regulatory morass that's entirely left behind. On the other hand, this is a guy, you know, as he says, wants to be a blue collar mayor and, you know, was elected to get important basic things right to, uh, to, to make a fairer city for, you know, lifelong New Yorkers and people whose whole families are here uh, to maintain public safety while reforming the police and so on. And it's interesting that he's bringing all this moonshot stuff up now as opposed to during the, uh, the primary. It's, uh, it makes me wonder what his priorities are going to be outside of the public safety bit, which he's been clear on, in principle at least, right when he comes in. I, I, I'm not sure I'm totally clear on that. I, I've seen his position stuff, but like, you know, yeah. those are campaign papers. I don't know what they mean. What do you think? Well, I think the campaigning phase and the governance phase are two totally different phases. I mean, it's always lovely when they when they link up, right? Especially if it's your candidate who wins. But I do think that, you know, there are probably many policy spaces that Eric Adams didn't touch because he'd be asked about them in a primary. And so why would I bring up, you know, I love this moon, moon landing issues, moonbeam issues, because- Moonshot, 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 make it. moonshot issues, right? Because if all of a sudden I'm talking about Bitcoin, then- if I'm on stage with someone from Wall Street or someone who understands economics possibly a little more than I, or or I'm backed by a tech billionaire, um, I might have to start answering some questions that maybe I can't answer and uh, answer to some folks uh, who who might not be pleased with that decision. So I think what's going to be really telling is the the sort of space between now and November, and obviously November and January first. I hope the press doesn't get so distracted by minor antics that they forget to start asking like real, real questions, not start asking, but they, they forget to ask the substantive questions. You know, like I started off with the earring piece. That's fun. That's cute, but it's a distraction. Like, let's actually, I want to know about your plan for homelessness, not whether or not you get your ear pierced. Is he going to get his right ear pierced next? Is uh, the big question the press is going to be on. (laughs) But you see what I'm saying? I mean, I think, this is this is a, a warning to our friends in the press, uh, lovingly so. But I think that Eric Adams, part of the brilliance of him as a politician and tactician, is that he can do some sleight of hand with the press, and they focus on what he is essentially telling them to focus on, i.e., whether or not he lives in Brooklyn or New Jersey, and we spend a lot of time with that as opposed to digging a little bit deeper as to what is your housing policy, not where is your house. Let me just say real quick, and then we're going to welcome in Alvin Bragg, who is now the Democratic nominee and thus surely going to be the next Manhattan district attorney. But of course, every mayor tries to set the agenda for the press. And uh, they put out statements with 75 co-validators, and this is what they want to talk about today. Um, they show up places and try to create entertaining stories and pick what, what, what we write about and what we don't. And de Blasio was generally very unsuccessful at that and uh, was mocked for it. But if a mayor is too successful at that, it can, be, it can be really problematical. And so someone like Eric Adams, who knows how to make a story, um, here, here are the dead rats, here is my earring, we're going we're gonna to see how that Here's goes. my refrigerator. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure he wanted to be sharing that one, but we did certainly get there. But, but yeah, I, I think that we need to stay vigilant and not get distracted 
um, because keep in mind, he's not new to this rodeo and he's definitely not new to the press. He might be new to the press as a mayor and mayor-elect, but he's not new to the press as someone who can actually set the pace and the tone of the conversation. Speaking of the pace and the tone of the conversation, welcome, uh, Alvin Bragg. Thank you for uh, rejoining FAQ NYC. Happy to, to be with y'all. Uh, I did want to ask you just for a minute about the uh, Trump Organization case and depending, we can return there. You know, I've been following this with general interest. And then in the last few months, I've been talking with a, a series of lawyers who don't like Trump, some of whom like Vance, some of whom don't. And I just keep hearing about what a uh, sort of off case this seems to be to a lot of people in the you know, you have like the Trump kids investigation where he decided not to charge. And that was sort of a traditional investigation where, where with these signs of wrongdoing, you find papers and, you know, then you decide whether or not that reaches your threshold. And in this case, we seem to have a, we should get this fucking guy thing. What can we find? And then in the course of this, we end up with uh, Weiselberg and the tax benefits. I know tax benefits are not often charged criminally. Um, and this is supposed to be a conspiracy to defraud the federal government as well. And the feds aren't involved in the case. And you're going to be inheriting all this, obviously. So, so we, we were just t- chatting before you were on. I was interested if that's something you would be able to speak to at all. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm constrained in terms of what I can say about that, particularly, you know, now at this point, it does seem very likely that I'll inherit it if it's still uh, alive. Um, I will say just based on my general experience from doing cases, you know, it is often very challenging to assess from the outside, particularly midstream. Um, You you know, so I have, I've been reading some of the same commentary you have. I've done tax cases. um, And, and I guess I just would counsel everyone to, you know, be, be patient. And, you know, we don't know where the case may go. We also don't know the proof in the matter. Obviously the defense has a, I heard their remarks. They'll continue to talk as is customary. The prosecution saying less, well, which is appropriate, uh, but there may be things that they could say in response to some of the, some of the arguments that they don't still feel it's appropriate to say at this time. But yeah, I'm constrained from talking, you know, anything about it besides saying like, let's wait and see the, the, the proof and see uh, how it, how it develops. And is there some point at which, you know, presuming everything is, as it appears post November, when you'd be able to connect, with the office more directly and, and sort of get up to speed on, on what they have and where they're going? You know, so so when I was at the attorney general's office, you know, as chief deputy, I was on the other side of this coin, helping the Tish James team transition in. And we certainly had meetings, uh, you know, before inauguration day to help prepare them on the, you know, the status of matters. And, you know, I, you know, I, I anticipate, you know, process, uh, you know, like that here. Um, So, Alvin, first things first, congrats and thanks for coming back on FAQ NYC. I had a question about organization of the office as you start to think about uh, who's going to stay and who's going to go. Can you walk us through that process? Because I remember reading a story when Krasner came to be in Philadelphia, and there were obviously lots of folks who thought he was too progressive. I even knew some folks who quit um, because they were just like, "It's, it's not for me. I was just with someone who... Uh, works in the Manhattan office currently, who's retiring. Um, and her vague statement was like, I probably just won't be a good fit. 
So what's going to be your process? Do you make everyone reapply for their job or do you kind of, how do you, how are you going to assess who gets to say who gets to go? So the, first of all, thanks for having me back on. I like talking to y'all. So thank you for having me and thank you for the congratulations. And I think the staffing issue is one to be given primacy. I think about it in, in sort of three tranches. The first tranche is the executive staff, the, the people who are reporting directly to the district attorney. Harry was asking me uh, questions before, and I said talk, talked about the, the Tish James transition, uh, with the exception of Barbara Underwood, who um, was differently situated, and I think all of the candidates in that race said that they would keep her on. All of the direct reports at the attorney general's office, we all decided to move on. Um, we just thought that a, a, a new principal uh, should have her own direct reports. And obviously, again, Barbara was just in a different um, position. And and so I anticipate that here. And so I'm looking first and foremost at the executive staff in terms of how to build the team and anticipate largely turning that group over. Uh, I think that's appropriate. And how large is that team? That It's about 10 people. It's about 10 people. And it's, you know, the person who is, you know, the kind of chief deputy, the number two. It's the person who oversees what's called the trial division, which is all of the cases. I was going to think of sort of the reactive sort of street crime cases, the investigations division, sort of the white collar long term investigations. Uh, And so, look, I hope during the transition to be sort of, you know, talking to those folks, learning, but mostly, uh, you know, turning over that group to bring in people who will help me implement, um, you know, what we want to do with the office, which is in part shift two more long-term investigations that are looking at systems uh, and not sort of reflexively just uh, kind of prosecuting as, you know, as you and I have talked about before, kind of the particularly the low-level docket. So that's the first tranche. And to me, that's you know, relatively easy. The second tranche is the junior, the, the, the people who are starting out. And those folks, um, my plan is that they, they largely stay. I mean, we, we have a day one memo on our website. Uh, so we will re-articulate that internally to the office and people who are not comfortable with that, you know, should, should leave. But my default, particularly drawn from my time teaching, is that people are not going to these offices. I know my former students to do the kind of cases I don't want to do. They come in with big, big ideas and they want to address public safety. They want to work on police accountability in many instances, but then sort of the culture so how do you get promoted and like kind of looking to the corner office? And so I think the, 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 the more junior people through staffing and training, I feel very comfortable about uh, kind of staying the course. And I think the hardest point is the third tranche, the sort of, you know, for lack of a better phrase, mid-level managers, the people who are bureau chiefs. And that is going to be a lot of listening and talking to, listening to practitioners, judges, people in the office, people outside of the office, talking directly to them and asking people, you know, look, this is what we're going to do. You know, um, you've been doing something differently and then having an honest conversation, obviously, will ultimately make the assessment. But I think that's a more granular decision. I got a question here about that second tranche. And most of those young ADAs, mostly young, are presumably going to be staying. But as you're thinking about the office heading forward, if you do want young ADAs who are sort of looking at bigger ideas and this bigger picture, and this isn't supposed to be an assembly line, right? Is the model still going to be largely hiring 24-year-olds who are, you know, both part of this machine, but also vested with this great responsibility, or does that potentially shift? So I, th- I think we will look at that, but but I know, and again, from you know, having spent the last few years teaching the sort of beauty of the new energy, and particularly at New York Law School, not to plug, but where we've been training people and 
thinking about you know these these issues. Um, so I think we want to do both. We want to continue to recruit straight out of law school. I want to uh, give a lot of emphasis to life experience. So I've found throughout my career being really you know motivated by having been stopped at gunpoint three times by the police. That's framed how I approach cases, how I examine officers when I put them on the stand. Um, we want to you know be talking to people who've been like I had been the victims of crime, people who know people who've reentered. Uh, so looking more broadly and not just um, you know at GPA and writing samples. Um, and I'm not anti-elitist, right? I went to Harvard twice. You know, you know, those things matter. Um, but what matters the most is judgment and integrity. Uh, and I think particularly on the sort of skills, you know, you need to process these issues when you may not have a ton of legal experience uh, to, to have a set of life experiences that help. And Manhattan's the best place to recruit from. We've got such a great, I would call it reverse brain drain here. Uh, and I want to recruit from the whole all four corners of the island and, and maybe people traditionally who haven't been. Uh, but to the second part of your question, I think we may do more laterals, more bringing in more people who have practiced uh, more people who've practiced uh, in different areas, you know, people who've done a civil rights work, people who've done some public defense, really kind of broadening from the, the sort of traditional hiring pool. I, I wanted to follow up with that because I, w- I was always concerned with, and I don't want to be ageist, but with 24-year-olds having so much power. And largely because it stems from a conversation I had with a, a dear friend who worked in the Bronx DA's office right out of, out of law school. She's from the Bronx, uh, from a working-class family, but, you know, a lot of her colleagues were not. And she went out once and, you know, they were essentially doing shots based on the number of people they'd put away that night. And there was a real disconnect, class and race-wise, with the people who were prosecuting and the folks that actually had real life changes based on their decisions and their prosecutions. As you bring in other people, not just 24-year-olds, what is the current demographic of, say, that, that very junior level? And are there any sort of real kind of tangibles that you already know that you want to change? Like, is there a gender dynamic that needs to be elevated? Is there a racial dynamic? Is there a class dynamic? Like, are we looking at most people who were Ivy, Ivy pluses? Like, you know, I, I think to have a holistic office, as you've said, you know, bringing in possibly some older people who have experience. I know, you know, now that you've been teaching, everybody wants to be a professor like Chrissy Greer, but you see what I'm saying? I, I think my concern always with these DA's offices that on, on the most junior level and, and, and arguably some of the most important levels, which is those those folks who are in the courtroom, there's a, a lack of worldly understanding. There's a lack of class understanding. There's definitely a lack of racial understanding with a lot of the people that have that power. And just to add one thing there, there's often a lack of discretion for whoever has that power, which is why 24-year-olds are fine because they're supposed to be running through a, uh, a process where, where, where they're just punching in their parts. So y- y'all touched upon so many really important issues uh, from a management perspective. To, to start where uh, Professor Greer uh, uh, was uh, emphasizing about the, the shots uh, and, and, and people sort of you know, celebrating, taking victory laps. I, I, that's, to me, a, a function of maturity sometimes, but also perspective. And so we're going to address both. Um, on the perspective front, it's, I think, at every point in the organization, really looking to diversify. And that's in all ways. I mean, prosecution, and I've now you know, been 
20 plus years, uh, you know, in this space, it's overwhelmingly white and male. Uh, and, and we need to, to change that. And we'll do that through, through hiring also in attrition. Uh, I don't have the hard data from the Manhattan days office, but I know anecdotally, um, from people who have left, um, um, particularly I'm thinking about black lawyers who've reached out to me, uh, that as we kind of go up into the senior ranks, uh, there are people who are, who are leaving. So I think we can deal with perspective from really drawing in both on the executive level uh, and then over time at the more more junior ranks, what we're looking for, people who've had you know, broader life experiences, uh, people who are coming from you know, various walks of life. So I think that's very important and that gets to sort of the maturity and perspective. Now, specifically to maturity, I think we also have to support the junior folks in a different way. And I'll just give you one kind of specific example. I think one of the most important roles in the district attorney's office is the head of what's called the Early Complaint Assessment Bureau. This is the the group, the bureau that decides uh, when the police bring a case. You think about law and order, that 30-minute mark where the, they show up and say, this is our case. Uh, that's the bureau that decides whether it's going to go forward or not. Right now, there's not a full-time person uh, in that role overseeing that bureau. It rotates. It's a rotational model. I want to have someone who's in that position full-time, who's on my senior staff, who's got a very broad worldview, perhaps someone who's been a public defender, uh, but certainly someone who's seen more than um, the traditional perspective. Uh, so I think that's a way where we can, you know, institutionally, structurally support the junior ranks by having a you know, dedicated leadership uh, and someone who's charged with implementing my vision. And then to Harry's point about discretion, what we're going to do when we've laid this out in some of our policy papers, and it sounds like such a nuanced, wonky thing, but I think it's very important, is to change the default. The default for so long in prosecutor's office has been, you know what, you can go to the highest, most punitive results. Uh, you have the discretion to do that. But if you want to do something more lenient, then you're going to be reviewed more closely. And we're going to change that. We have the defaults to be the lowest uh, sentence, um, the most lenient bill. And if you want to go above that, you've got to get supervisory approval. And I think that change, while, you know, you talk to folks, you know, it's, it's very kind of wonkish, but I think it's going to have very significant practical effects. You know, not, does not think that's wonkish is the New York Post, which, while you're looking at uh, having someone check on, you know, intervening early in cases, I, I could see them dedicating someone to everyone who's received a, a shorter or fairer sentence doing anything bad, which is a beat they've been on for as long as I've been alive, at least. Just so I, I've not yet seen the article and written in, my, in detail myself, but, but I've been told they've already, they, they wrote something already, I think uh, more talking about me wanting to shrink the system. So, you know, we're prepared for that. Um, and all I ask is of the electorate, and I, I really would hope of, of, you know, people who are reporting is like, let's have real conversations, like based in data uh, and not just in sensational titles that, you know, kind of warp a policy. But that's my request. We'll see if it'll be on. And I might throw in with the post and not based on a surface level racial analysis that they consistently put forth. No, my, our screens aren't frozen. My eyes are actually rolling that hard. Go ahead, Harry. <laughs> so the pop's legal in New York now. Take a deep breath for one minute. When I look real big picture, the thing that messes me up is we have a, a constitutional system in the United States of America that's based on trial rights. And in practice, 
we have almost no trials. Last year, the court system basically shut down for the pandemic. Some people actually had to go in in person to get Zoom connections. It was very messy. Your office runs through a tremendous volume of cases. There is still some, some limits on, on your discretion there, even if they're smaller offenses that you're not going to charge now. Is this right? Is this something a prosecutor can deal with? Uh, I mean, we, we have a system in which I, I just know as a reporter, right, I depend on, on trial transcripts and things like that. Almost everything gets put out before you get to that point. And if that didn't happen, which people tested out a bit, like during Occupy, when the police were arresting people en masse, and then they were all insisting on trials, this all breaks down. There simply aren't enough judges, jurors, or prosecutors to go around. What do, you, what do you make of all that? And, and what would your approach be to, to that set of questions as, as district attorney, where, where obviously you, you do have to keep the gears going? Yeah, I think Professor Gears' presence is making me feel more professorial this morning. This is a topic that I cover in my, my first year criminal law class, you know, and, and, and you, know, what, you know, it's called the trial tax, right? I mean, this is a, this is, as you say, this is the, the bedrock of our not just sort of our actual law, but really embedded in our culture, having your day in court. When people think about that, that's not your day to plead. It's your trial. It's Clarence Darrow. It's Johnny Cochran. Um, and so it's both symbolic, but also very real, as you point out. Uh, so we're going to address this in a couple of ways. We, we are you know, not going to you know, have what's called the trial tax, you know, penalizing folks if they go forward with a sort of a heftier penalty. Um, and people say, well, the whole system, as you say, will grind to a halt. But what we're going to do that in partnership with is just not bringing cases that don't have public safety benefits. Uh, you know, they're just whole sets of cases and we've outlined them, um, you know, on my campaign website that just don't result in public safety benefits and should not be, in my view, you know, part of the system. You know, maybe another part of government should be addressing them and we'll work with new leadership, um, but shouldn't result in the ultimate government sanction. And so that that will, I think, relieve some of the pressure on the docket and really, um, you know, emphasize uh, that the cases we bring will be prepared to, to try. I've got a question about you working with, say, public defenders as well. What does that relationship look like? So I would say during the sort of, you know, kind of pre-governing stage, certainly, you know, being in consultation with and getting their views on what's working well, what isn't working well, personnel issues. I'm, I'm on the Legal Aid Society Board of Directors, so you know, have good relationships there and, and, and hold their view in, in high regard. Um, and then you know, governing, uh, I, I talked to someone who actually was the, the, she's an academic now, but several years ago was a, the head of a public defender organization and talked about her counterpart um, you know, coming over to the office. Um, you know, being in, in frequent dialogue. So I, I contemplate that. I know when I was at the U.S. Attorney's Office, the U.S. Attorney and the head federal defender would, would be in dialogue. So I think that's an important part. And I would add to that also the judiciary. Uh, oftentimes in these reform conversations, we don't highlight the people in the black robes enough. I, I, I could be guilty of that myself uh, at times. And so I think that outreach, which I hope to start uh, to the extent appropriate before Inauguration Day, but certainly after I'm in office to really be you know, talking to judges, not just not about individual cases, because that wouldn't be appropriate, but about the more macro issues, um, I think is very important. And then, and then hold on real fast, Harry, just a quick follow up, because I, I've just skimmed this this um, Tom Hogan piece in the post. I'm not saying it's rubbish, but I'm not not saying it's rubbish. But one of his biggest critiques is that you haven't served as a D.A., 
let's just, let's get that off the table right now. Based on your experience, why is that a nonsensical argument, Tom Hogan? You know, you know so look, I, I, we could take it in, in lots of strokes, but let's just take it just specifically as to my resume. Uh, you know, I've been, a, I've been a federal prosecutor. I was the number two lawyer in the New York State Attorney General's office overseeing our criminal division. So uh, it just, in base of saying, okay, you haven't done all the full spectrum of cases in this exact building. Um, and I just think, you know, we all know from, various experiences that, that skills are portable, um, right? You know, you're, you're, you're a professor of a certain class now at a certain university. Does that mean you can't go teach at a smaller university and change your, your course, you know, uh, focus? No, it's the same general skill set. Uh, and I would go further than that and say that, you know, someone who has the background and, and the management skills and the case-making skills coming in with a, a new eye on an institution is important. Uh, it's going to be, I think, in many ways, easier for me to see issues and reject sort of sometimes we've all worked in places and say, well, well, we do that because we do that. Well, the new person usually calls that out and says, well, huh? So I think I'm well situated to do that. I do think that that having people who've been in the office um, on my team is important. Uh, and so I recognize that to a certain extent, but that's who you, who you build. I think we're going to have a diverse team. I think having public defenders and people in that perspective is also important. So I reject that thesis and I, and, and I, and I would actually also love to press on it and we can look at, you know, I don't know this author's view of Mr. Morgenthau, right. But Mr. Morgenthau uh, had not been an assistant district attorney. And in fact, came from the office I was now he was the U S attorney in the Southern district of New York. I was an assistant U S attorney, but I would, I would love to get the author of that article's view of Mr. Morgenthau's experience and whether he was prepared. Well, I think we have an assignment for Mr. Hogan of the post. I roll. (laughs) Go ahead. I wanted to ask you about uh, the uh, sort of tech dystopia we're in now. What's about to be your office under present management has used uh, geofences a whole number of times, which is when you get data or metadata from all the cell phones in a given area where a bad thing happened to uh, try to find people who are involved in that thing. Uh, There's been a lot about facial recognition recently, and both the NYPD and the Manhattan DA have have run gang cases uh, where they're using social networks and connections to try to uh, find all the bad guys and maybe getting some of their uh, cousins or friends or whoever else wrapped up at the same time. Do you plan to implement any hard limits on current or emerging technologies uh, that that can be useful tools and are also prone to abuse? And we could also throw in, I suppose, DNA databases there. Yeah, yeah, look, you, 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 and you've all, you, you you hit all the, the big ones. And, and as with all, I think sort of really tough issues, they emerge when we have really strong competing interests on both sides, right? So public safety on the one side and, and, and civil liberties and privacy on the others. A lot of you know, criminal constitutional law really grapples with that tension. I think what we've seen, um, you know, kind of broadly construed with all these technologies across the country is we have to always kind of keep that equation in balance. So, you know, sometimes these things are used, I'm thinking of the the robot dog over the summer, the NYPD use. It's like, hey, we're in the middle of a pandemic. Um, we're having, you know, food insecurity and we're using this robot dog. Um, and and so we've got to always just kind of keep like, what is our purpose? Does this advance public safety? Uh, and at what cost? Uh, you know, now during the primary, there were other candidates who, you know, 
had a view of sort of a flat band. I'm not going to use certain technologies at all. Uh, and I, I, I have a different view. Uh, you know, my view is that we need to use it judiciously. We need to look at this equation and the query. And I think it's a, you know, a timely one that I say is like, look, if I were, you know, the DC U.S. attorney right now, I'm using geofencing and facial technology to figure out who stormed the Capitol on January 6th. And I think they are using that technology. Um, so that's why I, I resist the flat ban, because I think there are times when you look at the equation and the civil liberties incursion is worthwhile for the public safety benefits. But the second we lose focus and are not doing that calculus, um, we're not doing justice. So this has got to come down to discretion and judgment in your view. Yeah, exactly. And this, this, you know, this goes back to the, your earlier questions about um, who are we hiring, who's making these decisions, and then how are we cabining and, and overseeing the discretion? So again, this sort of input of you know, kind of funnel and, and, and crystallizing these hard choices and making sure that we're having people with experience, yes, as sort of courtroom advocates, but also, you know, let's have someone in the room, you know, who's uh, knows what it's like to, you know, have their liberty incurred upon in some way. I think that's important. I have a quick question. It's Alex. Nice to see you again, Alvin. Um, so when it comes to diversion courts, and I know this was one of our questions when we had you on before during the campaign, the Diversion Court for Mental Health, um, from all accounts, it is a difficult process for a mentally ill person to kind of anecdotally a lot more difficult to get into that court than, say, like addiction diversion courts. The person has to be of enough sound mind to go through several proffer sessions. Uh, they have to basically prove that they've been institutionalized or that they are, in fact, mentally ill when a lot of them don't have their records. Um, on your website, you know, the homelessness and uh, mental health is kind of conflated into one, which is understandable because of the public safety issue. But my question is, if you are going to take a look at that diversion court to make it easier and more accessible for all mentally ill people, how do you do that when the supporting system isn't quite there like it is with drug addiction, say? Um, there aren't enough hospital beds and there aren't exactly the same kind of like sober house rehab system set up. Uh, there, there used to be, there's some argument why it isn't anymore. But like, what can you do specifically in that area in regard to this particular diversion court when there's also been so much in the news about the mental health of this city and how strained a lot of the resources are in dealing with that. Yeah, no, that, that's, that's, that's a phenomenally important issue. So the first thing is I, I, there, there is an infrastructure issue and I, I'll, I'll get to that in a, in a moment. There's also a legal distinction, um, you know, under the law, a judge can route uh, someone accused of a crime to one of the drug courts uh, under the law as it currently is, the judge cannot do that for mental health court without the consent of the district attorney. Uh, so that that is, I think, the beginning of the difference. And so I want to, you know, be open to consenting more and really opening up that spigot. And you also talked about the really long runway. Um, often it takes so much time because of the proffers. And so I think we want to streamline that and really have much more of an openness and a and an open mind and view to really maximizing the current system in the first place and using it uh, fully. Uh, and then secondarily, 
I view the the Manhattan district attorney, really all the district attorneys, as being a part of the kind of board of directors for the city. And I think it's sounding the alarm on the fact that we've got to deepen our capacity in mental health infrastructure and, and sounding it in the way that you know, perhaps past prosecutors, when they talk about a, you know, a looming public safety issue and they get the attention of the electorate because they're the public safety expert, the mental health we need to be talking about with the same urgency. Uh, and my, my hope is that you know, doing that and raising that from the seat of the district attorney will help uh, that discussion. Uh, and also, as, as you know, the Manhattan District Attorney Office has uh, you know, forfeiture funds for some prior white collar cases. I've said that I want to open that process up, have it more transparent and get the input of the electorate, but that my own personal priorities for that money are, are mental health and reentry services. Okay, so Alvin, I'm curious now, you know, just kind of based on what you just told Alex, how do you plan to implement some of these things with the incoming mayor? So now we know that it looks like Eric Adams is going to be our mayor-elect. Um, if the DAs in some ways are this kind of board of advisors or, or I would say a moral compass in, in some ways for the city and for a mayor, um, what are some things that you're excited or apprehensive about uh, moving forward with now that we know that Eric Adams will most likely be the 110th mayor of New York? So I, I am very excited um, to have a mayor who understands race. Um, you know, I've, I've, I don't know Eric well. We've gotten to know each other through, um, you know, kind of the campaign. Oftentimes the mayoral candidates in the same place as district attorney candidates. And I, you know, I've heard him talk about, you know, you know race in forthright and direct ways. Uh, and I think we need to be having that conversation, in, you know, really across the, the board, but specifically with great force um, in criminal justice. And so, uh, you know, one thing that I want to do is, is remove racial disparities. You know, we, we have a 2015 report from the Vera Institute documenting at every step in Manhattan the racial disparities. And I have ideas for what we're going to do in the Manhattan DA's office to address that. But, you know, the problem starts before it hits the DA's office with the arrest. Um, and so having someone who I know is a willing ear to talk about um, race is important. Um, and so I'm really excited about that. Um, I do uh, look forward to having a robust dialogue about the role of stop and frisk. Um, you know, I helped lead an effort at the attorney general's office reviewing four years of data on uh, stop and frisk, which showed that only 0.1% of uh, the arrests resulted in a conviction for a gun offense. And, to me, that speaks to the inefficacy of that. Um, and that's a conversation I want to have with, with, with the mayor. Um, and I think it's an important one. So I look forward to that. I think we have to be talking and it's, you know, not just the DA and the mayor, but it's the public advocate, it's the controller, it's the borough president, uh, it's the city council. And we have what appears like it's going to be a nice mix of sort of, um, you know, new voices and, uh, you know, but some old steady hands uh, and, look forward to, to discussing with the mayor, but also as someone who worked at the city council, want to throw them in the mix as well, too. What do you know now that you did not prior to running for office about uh, being a candidate in New York and how things work here? And just given your druthers, you don't have your druthers, so you can speak freely, I hope. Uh, what would you change about the way state elections, which the Manhattan District Attorney offices are, are, are run. You know, I'm thinking about the insanely high contributions to start with, uh, but there's lots there. Maybe we should have ranked choice, lots of other thoughts. So so what, what have you learned and uh, what do you think of the system? 
it, it's the campaign finance. I mean, you know, that's the, to, to me during the campaign, you know, there was a conversation about other offices in campaign finance and we try to interject the, the DA into that discussion. Uh, and so this is before, you know, this race played out in the way it did with the amount of money in it. So my view kind of predates my specific full campaign, but now I, I feel with even more urgency. I mean, the cap for those of your listeners who don't know in Manhattan is about $37,000 in the primary. You know, it's a formula uh, based upon the number of registered voters. Uh, and so it's a statewide formula. So you plug it into an upstate County, it comes out with a much lower number. You plug it in for Manhattan and the, you know, the, you know, just kind of goes berserk. Uh, and for the general, the number is about 50,000, I believe. Uh, so especially, especially for the role of district attorney, we need to really remove that much money uh, and really think about how we, how we have the conversation. We need to have a conversation with a deep field this time. I think that's good for democracy uh, with people from different views, but we need to remove the money one, because it helps the conversation of the campaign, but also the governing. And it's not just about integrity and fairness, it's about the perception, right? Um, the perception that justice is being done is uh, in some ways as important that justice be done. Can be exciting. I'm excited to see what you do with the office. I'm excited to see how some of these reforms can be a model for other cities. I know that you mentioned, you know, Ken Thompson was uh, a role model and a mentor. Um, I think some of your conservative critics will say like, you know, we don't want to end up like Chicago and Philadelphia and Baltimore. But I do think that there is a way that we can have uh, a district attorney's office that is led with dignity and respect for for folks who live in the city. And it's not criminalization of poverty in some instances. And so I'm excited about how we can reimagine it. And I think your point to, you know, sometimes when you go to places and it's like, well, why do we do it this way? It's like, I don't know, because that's just how we do it. I think this is why turnover is important uh, at all levels of government, because sometimes we just get calcified in how we do things and we're not. I mean, I, quick anecdote, but like my grandmother used to always cut a piece of ham, like a small piece of ham off and then put it in a pan. So then my mother did it and then I did it. And then I asked and my mom asked my mo- my grandmother, like, why do you do that? Like it, she thought it was for seasonings. And she was like, oh, my mother did it because we didn't have a pan large enough for ham. So like she used to always just have to like cut a piece off. And then put it in. So it's like you end up doing things that you think have a meaning, and sometimes it's just because. That's and a so great, that's why. That's a, that I now have this image in my head, and I, I firmly <laughs> believe in this. Like we ought to, we always have to be asking, you know, why we do things. But that yes. I've never heard it crystallized. <laughs> I now have this image of this piece of ham. It's great. The McCray women's ham. We always cut a slice off, like a, a chunk off, and it has nothing to do with the seasoning or the flavor. It was literally because my great-grandmother did not have a pan large enough for ham. <laughs> Alvin Bragg, thank you again for coming on. A very closing question here. Next year, when, and I do assume it's when, your district attorney, Bragg, uh, would you be up to come back on this podcast? Not every day, not every week, but maybe once every six weeks so that we can have an ongoing conversation as you're, uh, as you're running the office about the state of justice in Manhattan. I would love to. We'd love to have that. Thank you. The bragging corner. Is that what we'll call it? Oh, that's bragging good. rights. That's good. <laughs> of the right, copyright. <laughs> yeah. We, we, we'll come up with something really fun and interesting. <laughs> bragging rights with brag. Every, you know, every Wednesday. (laughs) 
I, 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 um, there was a, he's a, he's a, he's a, he's a, he's a friend, uh, a clergy member who uh, introduced me to his parishioners during the campaign uh, and gave me the opportunity to speak. And, and he said, when I was done, he said, ah, now, now I want you to go out and brag on brag. <laughs> <laughs> brag on brag. So, well, when you're running for re-election, those will be the t-shirts. I brag about brag. <laughs> That's what I do. Well, Alvin, thank you so much. And congratulations again. I'm sure you've learned a lot. You've earned a, a touch bit of rest before it all begins. Um, and as you know, we've talked about on this podcast, uh, families also deserve a bit of rest uh, from this campaign season. We have the utmost respect for all the people, well, most, not all, I'm not going to say all, most of the people who ran this season um, and the hard work that they they put in, uh, they and their families. So that's great. And thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. F-A-Q. F-A-Q-N-Y-C is a production of Racket Media and a proud member of the Brickhouse Collective of independent journalists and artists. Check us out at thebrick.house. We're headquartered at the McSilver Institute for Poverty, Policy, and Research, and came to you this week from the boroughs of Brooklyn and Manhattan. A special thank you to our guest, Democratic nominee for the office of Manhattan District Attorney, Alvin Bragg, to the excellent Adam Kamara, mixed, chopped, sliced, and diced this week's episode. Slogan TK goes here, and we'll see you next week. I talk like this now. Goodbye. Before you go, yes. I just there's someone who wants to say hello. <gasps> Is that my little munchkin? Hold on, Al. There's a new FAQ participant. Oh. Walter Cadillac. Walter That's Cadillac Murray. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>